want to thank Spinks for filling in last week. Thank you, sir. Um, it is a blessing to have such a um, wonderful youth director, someone who's anointed by the Spirit, is um, very capable through the Lord's provision to, to handle the Word of God. So thank you, Spinks. Well, if you will, turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We're looking at verses 19 through 30 this morning. I remind you of our Philippians challenge to uh, read through the gospel, or excuse me, not the gospel, what is the gospel, but read through the book of Philippians out loud once a week and have a confession. I didn't do it this week and I apologize. Um, But do I do it twice this week to make up? Is that how it works? Um, But uh, it it is helpful, especially that the Lord used it to bring to mind his word in our lives when we most need it. And so hopefully these are words that you've read many times over, but let me read, to them, uh, read them to you again. Hear now the word of the Lord. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. They all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete that which was lacking in your service to me. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Let's pray. Father, we need your word. And we're thankful that you've given it to us. Where else can we go? For you, O Lord, have the words of life. Strengthen us this morning by your word. Equip us for every good work. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I took a um, a photography class in high school. Um, And I don't think they teach these kind of classes anymore because we actually had a dark room. For kids, I don't know if you knew this or not, but at one time, cameras actually used something called film. And we made something called a pinhole camera. And it follows the principle of what's called a camera obscura. I don't know if you've ever heard of this before. But long ago, even in Roman times, they discovered that if you're in a dark room or a dark cave with just a, a pinhole in a wall, several things are going to happen. The first is there's going to be some light in the cave or the, or the dark room, wherever you may be. But the second thing is, if you turn and look at the wall opposite the pinhole, do you know what you see? You see an inverted, upside-down picture of what's outside. See, it's, it's crazy. The, the light comes through the lens of that pinhole, and, and projected on the other side is an image of what's outside. Now, it's blurry, it's grainy, it's obscured if the pinhole is not perfect, if there are fibers of, of, of the wall or, or pieces of, of, of rock that are coming through or straw, something obscuring it, then it's not going to be perfect. But it is a reflected image 
of what's outside. Indeed, we, this is how a pinhole camera works. You, we used uh, Cheeto um, tubes, you know, the, the big canisters. And we poked a, 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 poked a hole in one side and put a piece of photographic paper inside on the other. And then you would expose the hole to light for five, ten seconds. And then you would take it and you develop a paper. And lo and behold, you had an albeit grainy and out of focus picture. But you had an image of what was on the other side of that hole. If we take this metaphor and apply it to the Christian life, as we apply it to who we are in Christ, who is the light of the world? It is Christ. And he's shining through the lens of the gospel in our lives. And as a result, we are meant to be a reflection, a capture, an image of who Christ is. Now, this side of heaven, we're going to be blurry and grainy from one degree or, or another. But in fact, we find this in Romans chapter 8, that he has preordained us, he had predestined us to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. And as we grow in the Lord, the the lens gets a little finer and it gets more um, uh, refined and focused and and hopefully, Lord willing, as we grow the reflection of, of what's outside of our Savior shining through that lens, it becomes a little more in focus as we yearn for the day when it is finally pulled into focus perfectly and we reflect our Savior in a pure and holy manner. So the question is, as we, as we go about our Christian lives, do people see the reflection of our Savior? Now, the, the lens is the gospel. There's nothing that we can do in and of ourselves to make us more like Jesus. God has to change us by his word, through prayer, through the sacraments, through the fellowship of church. But we are called to be godly servant disciples as we reflect our Savior. And we have two of these characters this morning to look at, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Um, Timothy and Epaphroditus were, were wonderful Christian men whom the Lord used greatly. But, but here's the thing, whenever we look at a picture, it's not the picture that we love, is it? It's the thing that the picture reminds us of. And so as we look at Timothy and Epaphroditus, as we consider ourselves and how much we reflect the the image of Christ, we aren't the heroes. Timothy and Epaphroditus certainly aren't either. Who is the hero? It is Christ, the image, the one to whom we are to reflect. Well, who are these two servant disciples, Timothy and Epaphroditus? Well, Timothy, we've seen him before in this text. He appears in Philippians 1.1 as one of the authors of Philippians. It says it starts with Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, um, to the saints who are at Philippi um, uh, with the overseers and deacons. So Timothy was known to the Philippian church. We've heard about him in Acts 16. This is the first time that uh, we learn about Timothy. When Paul was going through Galatia, the area of Galatia, on a second missionary journey, and we see that he was a young man, most likely in his 30s, who was highly esteemed by the church uh, in his hometown of Lystra and the surrounding area of Galatia. Um, Timothy would end up being a vital part of Paul's ministry. He was likely converted in his first missionary journey. In his second missionary journey, when he swings through Galatia this time, he is going to invite Timothy to be part of his ministry. He would serve not just as Paul's companion on subsequent missionary journeys, but also as his troubleshooter 
Timothy, even though he was exceedingly young, most likely in his early 30s, it may be perhaps younger, we don't know. Even though he was young, he was Paul's go-to guy. When things got tough, whom did he look to? Who, was his, his, who are his first responders? And at the very top of the list was Timothy. He would be sent to Corinth. If you know anything about the letters to the Corinthians, you know that this was a congregation with much trouble. And when things got really bad, Paul dispatched Timothy to go. He would also go to Thessalonica and also to Philippi. Even when Paul could not go himself, he was Paul's go-to guy. He was a godly young man. Tradition tells us that, uh, not scripture, but tradition, history tells us that Timothy ended up as the bishop of Ephesus. Whether or not he received that title is hotly debated, uh, but he was a minister in Ephesus as we see in 1 and 2 Timothy, these two letters written by Paul to Timothy. In fact, 2 Timothy is thought to be Paul's last letter And it's such an affectionate letter. He knows that his time is coming soon. And and he loves Timothy greatly. And he wants to impart a a last few nuggets of wisdom before the Lord calls him home. Timothy had a, a very godly grandmother, Lois, and mother, Eunice, who had taught him the scriptures from their, his early childhood and prepared him, tilled the ground of his heart for him to hear the gospel in Paul's ministry and be converted and respond to faith. Timothy was well known to the Philippians. He was very well known. See, he would come with um, Paul in Acts 16. I think I misspoke there earlier. We find in Acts 16 is is Paul and Luke and Silas and Timothy are coming to Philippi. And it's here in Philippi where um, uh, the Philippians first meet Timothy. They meet him because of God's work there. Where Lydia is converted, Lydia is converted here and the Philippian jailer comes to the Lord Jesus Christ. He and his whole household are are converted and then he got to spend time with Lydia and the other brothers and sisters in Christ as they returned to Lydia's home to worship and to send Paul on his way. Well, he would return without Paul as recorded in Acts 19 and then again without Paul. Uh, excuse me, he went without Paul in Acts 19 and returned with Paul in Acts 20. And so we know that he'd been at Philippi at least a handful of times, at least three times. He was well known to them. Um, Paul loved Timothy. He loved Timothy. Indeed, there was no one of whom uh, Paul spoke more highly as we see in Philippians 2.22. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. He was a a proven man, a tested man, not just to Paul, but to the Philippians. And Paul considered him one of his sons in the ministry. Can you imagine having been discipled by Paul? They went on a lot of journeys together. It's a lot of walking. Can you imagine the conversations that must have gone on between Timothy and Paul on those long roads? I remember when I was dating uh, Christy and uh, we dated for, I think, uh, four months and were engaged for three. So it was a quick romance. And one of the things we loved to do together was ride in the car back to her home or my home in Montgomery or Demopolis because we loved being in the same place together for, for at least two hours. And we got to talk and get caught up and hear what was going on in each other's lives. We got to know each other better on those long trips, longish trips. 
Can you imagine traveling with, uh, with Paul, walking day after day? You know, in our lives, we need at least three kind of relationships. And the first is we need a, we need a Paul. We need a Paul in our lives, someone who will pour into us, someone who will disciple us, someone who will walk with us through life, encourage us, exhort us, not always tell us what we want to hear, but tell us what we need to hear and point us to Jesus. Certainly, as I think in my own life, the primary one was a man actually named Paul, my father. And John Weiss, Ed Patterson, Marshall Brown, Alan Carter, Carl Smith, um, Martin Wagner, and others. These are men who have discipled, in, who discipled me, the Pauls in my life. But we also need a Timothy, don't we? We need someone that we can pour into, someone that we can disciple. And indeed, this is the very plan uh, for the gospel to go forth. Do you remember the, the Great Commission? Go therefore and make converts of all nations. No, that's not what it says. Makes all, uh, make disciples of all nations. Discipling means um, some time together. And so we need to be able to pour into others, as, as Paul would tell Timothy in 2 Timothy, in what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men who also be able to teach others. This is how the gospel goes forth. This is how lives are changed. Generations are changed. There's one other relationship we need, and it's a Barnabas. We need someone to disciple us, a Paul. We need a Timothy whom we can disciple. And we don't have to know everything, by the way. And we need Barnabas, someone that we can walk alongside with. Paul and Barnabas were co-leaders of the first missionary journey. And they were peers. And Barnabas was a great encourager to Paul. Someone he could pour his soul out to and find encouragement. We need each one of those. Do Do you have those in your life? Do you have those in your life? Someone to pour into you and someone you can pour into? and Just a friend, a, a believer whom you can walk alongside with? Paul values Timothy pre- Timothy's presence with him, but he hopes to send him to the Philippians soon. Just as soon as Paul hears his verdict of whether he will live or die at the hands of the Romans, he's going to send uh, Timothy to them to tell him what happened. He will dispatch Timothy to let them know. What about Epaphroditus? We don't know quite as much about him. Uh, His name only appears in the book of the Philippians. Um, But that doesn't mean he wasn't important. Epaphroditus was a a leader in the Philippian church, a a deeply trusted and respected man. We don't know if he was one of the original converts in Philippi or not. But there have been ten years or so since that first uh, visit to Philippi. And now he is one who is well respected in the church. And he has been sent, he's been commissioned to be a helper for Paul. Indeed, the word messenger that appears here is the word apostle. Here meaning one who is officially sent for a specific purpose. He wasn't just sent to bring money, though he did. He was there to help Paul and help him minister. His name meant lovely. And how lovely he must have appeared to Paul. Here Paul is in jail, perhaps in house arrest, but most likely in prison. And, and he hears in the, in the antechamber out there the jangle of keys and a voice he's heard before. Now, who is that? He's walking down the hall and Epaphroditus is talking to the jailer. He said, I think I, that's that Epaphroditus guy. And then the door opens and there's his friend. Bearing perhaps scrolls and books and maybe a cloak or two and certainly a money bag. But most importantly, a comrade in ministry. Someone will help him. How lovely he must have appeared 
to Paul. He was his brother, his fellow worker, his fellow soldier, we learn from this text. Each one of these is more exclusive. He had many brothers and sisters in Christ, and they were several fellow workers. In fact, Paul will use that term 11 times in the New Testament, at least, to refer to fellow workers. But a fellow soldier, a comrade in arms, there just aren't that many. He was someone that was precious to Paul and helped him very much. You know, at the University of Alabama, I graduated with 3,000 other people. That's a lot of folks. Now it's a lot more than that, by the way, per class. That's a lot of folks that you're around, but they're much fewer in my immediate sphere of friends at Reform University Fellowship, about 200. But even within that, there were only a few that I really counted my close friends, my fellow soldiers at Alabama. Um, But here's the problem. This fellow soldier, this person that was very dear to Paul, had gotten sick. In fact, he'd gotten very ill. Ill even to the point of death. We don't know what it was, but we do know, according to verse 30, that it was because of his work for the Lord. Perhaps it was just sheer exhaustion. Perhaps it was pneumonia from living in bad circumstances and poor living conditions. We don't know what it was, but the Lord had mercy on Epaphroditus and Paul and the Philippian church, and he healed him. And now it's time for him to go home. It's time for him to go home because they're all worried about the Philippians, that they would be so worried about his welfare. And so Paul sends him back to Philippi, but he doesn't go empty-handed. He goes with a letter, a letter that we call Philippians. What sets these two um, servants apart? What commends them as godly servant disciples? Well, ultimately, it is the grace of God, right? Anything within us that is good, it comes straight from the Lord. It is not our own doing. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. Indeed, we read in Philippians 2.13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for, your, for, excuse me, for His good pleasure. But we can identify three things in their lives that set them apart. And first is their love for people. Timothy, we are told in Philippians 2.20, For I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. You know, there are a lot of great reasons to serve the Lord. Um, We seek to glorify the Lord and to bring honor to his name. We seek to extend the kingdom as we share the gospel with others that they might know Jesus. We do it out of thankfulness to the Lord for all that he has done for us. But do you know, if, if love isn't part of it, then we're not serving the Lord. Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 says, look, if I can do all these great ministry things, but I don't have love, then I'm nothing. Love must undergird everything we do in service for each other and for the Lord. Timothy had gotten to know the Philippians very well during his at least three visits. And he loves them. He's concerned for them, and he wants to help them. Epaphroditus 2, verse 26, we read, For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Epaphroditus wanted to go home, not because he was homesick or because his ministry to Paul was necessarily over, but because he loved his brothers and it distressed him that they would be hurting, thinking that he was still ill, even to the point of death. When we seek the Lord, when we seek to serve Him, what's our motivation? 
I think oftentimes it's easy to slide right into duty and not love. Those two things can be very opposed to each other. I've signed up to do X, Y, and Z. I've committed to doing X, Y, and Z. I've got to go do it. Instead of, I love the Lord and I love the people. I love this class. I love this, um, this neighbor. I love this friend. I love this enemy. I love this classmate. I love this family member. The Lord is glorified when we do it not out of duty but out of love. Because here's the thing, it points us to our Savior, doesn't it? Was it duty that drove Jesus to the cross? Was it obligation? Did he grumble and complain as as the, uh, the Romans led him up the hill to Golgotha with his people crying out, crucify him? It was his love. It was his love for his his Lord, his Father, and it was love for us. We are lovely, as one author puts it, because he loves us. We are precious because we are his. Greater love has no one than this, than someone laid down his life for his friends. What even greater love the Lord has for us, we who were his enemies. As we think about this camera obscura, the the pinhole camera camera, metaphor of of Christ's love, does it reflect in our lives? Do we truly have love for others? The only way we'll love others is see how much our Savior loves us. Well, Timothy and Epaphroditus also put the Lord first. They put the Lord's interests at first. We see this of Timothy in verse 21. For they all seek their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. This is Paul's critique of others See, not everybody who ministered with Paul had stuck with him. When, the t- when things got tough, the tough, excuse me, when things got tough, they got going. They left him. There was one man named Demas, or Demas, I'm not real sure how to say his name, um, who had traveled with Paul in his ministry. He is even mentioned in the closing remarks of Colossians and Philemon as fellow workers with Paul. He is mentioned alongside men such as John Mark, Luke, and Aristarchus. But do you know in Paul's last letter we read this in 2 Timothy 4.10. For Demas in love with his present world has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. He was seeking his own interests, but not, not Timothy. Whose interest was he pursuing? It was the Lord's and ultimately the Philippians. He desired to help them. He had great concern for them. Epaphroditus the same way. He is called Paul's fellow soldier. Not an automatic category for Paul. But one that communicates someone who is committed and focused as a comrade in arms and ministry. Overlooking the beaches of Omaha and Normandy. Um... You know, Omaha Beach was designated as an American beachhead. There's a a large promontory, about 100 uh, feet high. The Nazis had put six cannons, 15.5 centimeter cannons, on top of this uh, promontory, this large cliff overlooking Omaha Beach that they could continually shell and and defeat anybody who would come um, onto that beach. They could certainly shell any landing craft or those who would make a a breakout on the beach. And so, so what had to be done? Well, this promontory called Point de Hoc, um, 225 or more army rangers 
were tasked with taking this thing. This was their one interest. This was their one focus. If this did not happen, then the, the Omaha landing beaches were at risk. Everyone might die. Their one interest was to get up that cliff 100 feet high and to take those six cannons. Do you know out of the 225 plus who went, only 90 survived? At great cost because their one interest was defeating this enemy. Their fellow soldiers might survive. This is the singular focus that Timothy and Epaphroditus had. They're willing to risk it all as we see the same with Jesus. Whose interest was he most focused on? Well, we can say twofold. It was for the glory of his father and for the good, the salvation of his people. The singular focus led all three here, Timothy, Epaphroditus, and our true hero, Jesus, to risk it all. Hebrews 13.23 tells us that that Timothy was imprisoned at least once. We don't know how many times. Uh, Tradition tells us that he died a martyr in AD 97 when at the age of 80 he tried to stop a pagan ceremony to a goddess, a pagan goddess, and he was beaten to death. Epaphroditus, too, was willing to leave it all in the field for the singular focus of the expansion of the gospel. In verse 30, we read that he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete that which was lacking in your service to me. This word risk means to gamble or to expose one's life boldly. He did this for the expansion of the gospel. And this isn't just a professional Christian thing. This isn't just ministers or youth directors or even officers. This is our call, each and every one of us, to be godly servant disciples as we reflect to the world around us, the character, the nature, the love, the the soul concern of our Savior, for the glory of our God and for the salvation of His people. This is certainly what Jesus did on the cross. He too gave it all. As we read in Galatians 2.20, The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who what? Who loved me and gave himself for me. We go and we minister, we go and we serve, not in order to earn God's love, but because we have it. We go as ministers of reconciliation to tell others about the redemption that we have in Christ, because our Savior loved us and gave himself for us. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the love that you have loved us with, the grace with which you've graced us with, that for your glory you would would, um, save yourself a people by a Redeemer, our Savior Jesus. We thank you for his love for us and the gift of his death, burial, and resurrection. Lord, we thank you for these servants of Timothy and Epaphroditus, but not because of who they are, but because of what Christ did through them. We pray that you'd use us. Take our lives and let them be, um, Father, used by you in in every area of our lives that, that you might be glorified and that your people might be built up and saved. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.